tremendous effort reading that passage. I think that's going to be our longest reading uh, the weekend. But uh, it is a great reading. Uh, just, I mean, just keep your finger in there. You, you will have already noticed, those who were here last night, that this weekend we're doing what's called systematic theology in that we're looking at a theme and we're seeing what the whole Bible has to say on it. So there is a bit of um, jumping around passages to see uh, what, what the whole Bible has to say about um, the end times. Uh, but today we're looking at resurrection and you know, that chapter there is just an amazing uh, summary of what's to come. So as we come to this topic of resurrection, why don't I lead us in a prayer that uh, God will speak to us. Heavenly Father, thank you so much uh, for this promise, this promised hope of resurrection. Uh, we thank you that Jesus has been raised. And Father, we pray that this morning we'll learn a lot about our own resurrection. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <coughs> Well, there was uh, once a man who was lying on his deathbed and it was a, a terrible um, kind of sad situation with his family gathered around and so on and they were all saying their final farewells and um, tearful goodbyes and so on. And eventually uh, he was just left lying there on his own. They'd said their goodbyes and uh, that all gone off and he was just left to his own thoughts and his own devices as he lay there. And uh, as he was thinking... Suddenly, um, a, a beautiful smell wafted into the room and, and into his nostrils and he could smell it and his mouth started to water. It was just this wonderful uh, smell that brought back so many memories. And he thought, could, it be, could it be right? My wife is cooking me my favourite chopped chip biscuits. I love these. She brings them out on special occasions these chocolate chip biscuits. And so with his last strength, he kind of thinks, oh, what a wonderful wife. You know, and he climbs out of his bed and he kind of staggers across the room and out the door and down the stairs. He's just kind of pulling himself across the kitchen floor to the tray of chocolate chip biscuits that are sitting up on the bench. And as he kind of, with his last kind of gasp, reaches up to, to grab a chocolate chip biscuit, a whack, his wife slaps his hand. They're for the funeral, she says. <laughs> And so, the way people prepare for death can be vastly different, can't it? But uh, how we prepare for death is very important, actually. I mean, some people just choose to ignore death. Some people laugh about death. Some people try and defy death. Uh, I once saw a documentary on Rupert Murdoch, who was, you know, I don't know how old he is now, um, this great Australian... And uh, he was he's maybe 80 or something. And he's there doing sit-ups and push-ups. And he says, I don't see why I should have to die. <laughs> no, he's going to try and defy death and just keep living and living uh, as he keeps his fitness regime off. A lot of people are just very scared of death. And I, I understand why. But what should our attitude to death be? Uh, how should we understand it? How are we going to face our own death? Uh, they're the questions that really this topic uh, will help us to grapple with, the topic of resurrection. But before we kind of move on to our second R of resurrection, it's worth just thinking about the theology of death itself. Uh, what is death? Why is there death? Uh, what's going on here? Um, so to do that, there's just two things that I want to point out about death uh, that the Bible teaches us. And the first thing is that death, and this is probably obvious if you've been a Christian for a little while, death is a punishment for sin. 
So at the beginning of the Bible, very beginning of the Bible in Genesis, God creates the world and he has uh, created his people and he gives them this bountiful garden with all these good things and they can eat from anything in the garden. And this is what he says, Genesis chapter 2, Lord God commanded them, you're free to eat from any tree in the garden but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. So any tree in the garden except for one and if they eat from that one, the result will be death. But of course, the story in the next chapter goes on, that's exactly what they did. They ate from that tree. And then the consequences have been with the world ever since, with humanity ever since. Uh, people have died. And so, uh, I mean, just as a brief summary, Romans 6.23 says, The wages of sin is death. So that's what we earn for our sin. And... Uh, it reminds us actually as we see death in our world that each of us are sinners. Um, we ought not kid ourselves that we're okay with God, we're fine. Death is supposed to remind us that we ourselves are sinners. And so the, the chapter just before that in Romans chapter 5, Paul writes, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, in this way death came to all men because all have sinned. That's why death is so universal because we all rebel against God and, and death is a punishment for sins. And that, by the way, is why death is sad. Uh, it's a bad thing. Um, if you've ever been touched by death by someone close to you, it's an awful thing. It rips your heart out. First time someone close to me died was in my first months of university. My, my grandmother died and then two weeks later a very good friend of mine from school died in a car crash and it ripped my heart out. <laughs> Um, the, the first kind of confrontation with death and it's very painful because it ought not be actually the way God created the world death shouldn't be here and so some people say well it's just a natural part of life well not originally it wasn't and so um, just as an aside I just, if you have been touched by death I, I want to say it's okay to feel sad and that, I think that's natural Sometimes Christians say, look, if another Christian dies, just rejoice. But I think a, a bit of you should feel sad because death itself is sad. And when Jesus' friend died, he wept when his friend Lazarus, di Lazarus died. And so it's okay to feel sad at death. Um, a friend of mine uh, who's a minister in a church in Sydney, I think he hit the nail on the head. He has, I, I don't know if you have a signboard out the front of your church. It's kind of... You, you do? Ah, good. <laughs> okay. Uh, he has a signboard out the front of his church to put up little notices and he's on this main road and, uh, you know, normally they're quirky little things. But one time he just decided to put up the sign, Death Sucks. And it's, it's, it hits the nail on the head, doesn't it? It really does. A death is a punishment for sin and it's painful and it hurts. And so... Uh, <coughs> That's one thing about death. But that's not the whole story actually and uh, this is, might be a little surprising. Sometimes we miss a point about death is that it's not only a punishment, it's also a bit of a mercy. Now, death is a bit of a mercy because, it might sound strange, but it's a mercy because living in a world of sin is actually can be really quite painful. Uh, so back in Genesis 3, after the people had sinned, 
Uh, we read this about God's mercy to them. God made them garments of skin uh, for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, Man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So now that sin's in the world, now that there's all this stuff that's gone wrong with relationships, with relationship with God, with relationships with other people, it'd be awful to kind of live forever in this world, to just keep on going, living endlessly. And so uh, when my friend put that sign up on his notice board at the church, it didn't take long actually for someone to come and graffiti it. They covered it with a death. They put, life sucks. (laughs) They were capturing this truth. Actually, it can be pretty horrible to live in a world of sin. And so in one sense... Death itself is a mercy because it releases us from this world, this broken, decaying world. God's numbered our days for a reason so that we don't have to put up with this pain of broken hearts, don't have to put up with these failing bodies and uh, the sin committed against us and the sin even committed by us that causes us pain. So that's death. Death is a mercy and death is a punishment at the same time. But of course, the Bible tells us that God did not let death have the final say. And uh, God himself sought to do something about death. And of course, this is the heart of the Christian message, that Jesus himself died for us. Uh, And by his dying, of course, he demonstrates God's love to us. So there's that great verse in Romans 5 that um, God demonstrated his own love for us in this while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. So he embraced us with his arms open wide on that cross and showed his love for us. And really that's the the essential truth of Christianity, that death, even God has died uh, for us and showed his love for us. So actually on my friend's signboard, um, just to finish off the story, it so happened that um, in the dim dark ages uh, that... uh, when, when people took photos, uh, they used to do it with this kind of camera that had something in it called film. Have any of you ever heard of this thing before? <laughs> anyway, there was film in cameras and you would uh, get your film at the end of taking uh, a few photos and you'd take it to get processed and you'd get your prints back. And uh, you'd, you'd take it to the chemist. I don't know why they had some monopoly on photography, but you'd take it to the chemist and then you'd get your prints back. But then... Uh, you know, there was this breakthrough probably when I was, uh, you know, in primary school or something that you could get instant photos. Can you believe it? And that would mean you'd take it to the chemist and then eight hours later, instantly, you could get your prints back. <laughs> anyway, what happened with my friend's church was that the person who'd scribbled out their sign and put life sucks on the top had taken photos of it, <laughs> of them doing it with their friends and then they'd taken it to the chemist who just so happened to go to the church. And so uh, the chemist kind of got their details, which I don't know about them, whether they were allowed to do this, and they let the minister know. And so uh, he had kind of the name of the person who'd kind of put this statement on his church sign, kind of graffitied his church and put the statement on And he had to think, well, what what should I say? Should I go around to their house? I know their address. Anyway, eventually he just kind of uh, put up a new sign uh, capturing this truth that, God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that Christ died for us. And he just said, 
God loves you, Jackie. <laughs> and so all the motorists, who's Jackie? <laughs> but she would have seen it because Christ died for her. But of course, Christ didn't stay dead. And that's where that uh, passage that Philippa uh, read begins. Uh, Paul summarises his gospel and he says in verse 3, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried and then he was raised on the third day according to scripture. So he died to conquer sin but he rose to conquer death so that death wouldn't be a, a, a hurdle for us anymore. Resurrection triumphs over death. But sometimes <coughs> resurrection is very difficult to believe. We don't see it every day. It's, it seems far-fetched. And this is not just something for our world and our time to think, well, in our scientific advancement that we have now, uh, we can't believe in resurrection. It was always hard to believe. Even the people that Paul's writing to were struggling to believe it. In Jesus' time, he met people and they didn't really believe in resurrection. And so uh, you might remember the time Jesus was talking to these uh, people who didn't believe in the resurrection and they posed this difficult question for him. Let's just say a, man, a woman was married to a man who died and then he had, she had to marry his brother, which was kind of the Jewish system. Then he died and then he had to marry the brother. This poor unfortunate woman. Seven brothers she has to marry. They say, Who's, whose wife will she be at the resurrection? And Jesus says, the, you guys, you don't believe in the resurrection and the reason you don't believe in the resurrection are two things. One, you don't know the scriptures. And two, you don't believe in the power of God. They're the two things that stop people believing in the, the resurrection. They don't believe the scriptures and they don't believe that God said that it will happen. And they don't believe God's powerful enough to make it happen. Well, Paul, in that 1 Corinthians 15 chapter, well, he goes to show uh, the, the re historic reality of Jesus' resurrection. Over 500 people, he says, have seen the re resurrected Jesus. Uh, and most of them were still alive when he was writing. You could go and ask them. Jesus had been raised and their lives had been transformed because of it. Now, uh, for me, actually, the historical reality of Jesus' resurrection is the thing that if ever I'm doubting something in my Christian faith, it's that that kind of <coughs> grounds me. Jesus was raised from the dead. It is so central. And Paul here is saying, it's beyond dispute. Ask any of these people. They saw it happen. But still there are these people in the Corinthian church who doubt that then they will be raised, that there will be another resurrection. And so verses 12 to 19, Paul argues from the historical fact of Jesus' resurrection, that actually everyone will be raised. He says in verse 12, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? He says. And so Paul argues the case that if there were no resurrection, Christ himself couldn't be raised. But he's already shown that Christ has been raised. And if there was no resurrection, everything else that the church had been teaching and believing kind of falls to pieces. And he says it's not just that um, we've been deluded. Actually, they're, they're, they're misrepresenting God if there's no resurrection from the dead. It's not just like they've, they've misread some safety instructions so they're, they're in trouble themselves. It's like they've actually been um, 
printing out and sending out false safety instructions. And so everybody else is getting the wrong message. Paul says it's to be pitied above all people if there's no resurrection. But of course, uh, in verse 20, he says, it's all hypothetical actually, but in fact Christ has been raised from the dead. So if Christ remains dead, they're still in their sins. He didn't conquer death. But it doesn't matter because Christ has been raised. So what we were talking about yesterday as we began our weekend away, <laughs> there you go, I've got a message, uh, which is quite... <laughs> the reason I brought my phone this morning will become apparent, but I wasn't supposed to get a message halfway through. Um, uh, we began talking about inaugurated eschatology, the end times that have begun. And that's exactly what Paul is saying here in 1 Corinthians 15. The resurrection that will happen has begun. The down payment's been made. Uh, the, the, the things have, have started to happen. And so Christ's resurrection is a guarantee that we also will be raised. Look at verse 23. He says, Christ is the first fruits. And then when he comes, those who belong to him will also be raised. So, in other words, that Jesus leads the way in his resurrection for everybody else to follow. Uh, Christ is the first fruits. And we, so we ought not to think of uh, resurrection just as something that has happened in the past. Something that will happen. And who will it happen to? Well, he says to all those who belong to him, but actually, uh, the Bible makes clear, resurrection will happen to everyone. It's not just Christians who will be raised. Um, so Jesus was quite clear. He, he was talking to um, some people in John's Gospel and he says, do not, this is John chapter 5, do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done what is good will rise to life, and those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. So all will be raised, not just Christians, everybody. And then there'll be judgment following that. And so Jesus kind of blazes the trail of resurrection. His resurrection is the first one and he's like the Pied Piper. Then everybody follows. And you can't not follow when, the, when he returns and calls them out of their graves. But then that kind of leads to the next big question of the chapter. What will it be like? <laughs> what will our resurrection body be like? And it's very difficult to imagine what our resurrection body will be like. It's hard to envisage the future. It'd be good to know the future, wouldn't it? Uh, I was reading um, the Google story, uh, a book that came out a couple of years ago about the founding of Google. And so there were just these kind of guys who were just a few years older than me, uh, grad students in the, in the late 90s, and they were sitting there working on their program. And uh, they were trying, they're just in their parents' garage or something. They were trying to find somebody who would kind of take their search engine off their hands for them. They developed it, it worked perfectly. They just wanted someone like, you know, a big computer company, Yahoo or these other ones, to buy from them. They weren't asking much, I think $100,000 or something. No one would touch it. No, we don't want that Google stuff. Anyway, so they eventually kind of just kept it themselves. It's worth now $250 billion, Google, right? So if only those companies could have known the future of the internet, well, you know, they would have been much better off. And it's, it's like that, isn't it? It'd be great to know the future. Uh, 
if we know the future, we can better prepare for it. Uh, you can be more excited about it. You can feel less anxious about what might happen. And so Paul gives us a bit of a glimpse of the future, of these resurrected bodies. Verse 35 onwards, uh, he, asks, he poses the question, Someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? What will they be like when Jesus returns? What will our bodies be like when he comes back? So our, our existence in this world is really, it's just so fragile. Generally, we end up at the end of our life just like we were at the beginning of our life, completely dependent on other people, um, weak, feeble. And even if we're at our peak, like you guys are, I can see fine specimens of humanity there. I mean, it doesn't take much, you know, a car accident like my friend or you know, a vicious strain of bug or something and life's snuffed out. It's really very fragile. Change of circumstances and, and life is over without much resistance at all. And so that's the existence that we're used to. They're, these are the bodies that we're used to. But what will it be like for all eternity? Like this? And what, what, what about when we kind of our bodies start to fail and that's the last, say, we, last we remember of someone, our grandma with her, you know, um, can't remember people's names anymore and stuck to a bed. Is that what she's going to be raised like? Well, this is the, this is the question that Paul's uh, answering. And, and also, the other thing is, what about, I don't know if you've ever wondered this, what about people, you know, we're talking about resurrection, what about people who are cremated? Or they, they, uh, they're burnt or they're eaten by crocodiles or something. That probably doesn't happen in England as much. Um, but what's, how are they going to be raised to life? Well, this is what he, this is what he te- uh, teaches us. And he gives us four illustrations of what it's going to be like, these resurrection bodies. Um, so the first one is that for life through death, it, it just it needs a different body. These bodies are... are inappropriate for this future life. And Paul uh, points to this kind of concept in verse 36 using uh, agriculture as an example. Uh, What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. So a seed is sown, it's dead, but from this new seed blossoms new life. Something completely different. It doesn't look like what was there before. What you sow is not the body that is to be, this is verse 37, but a bare kernel perhaps of wheat or some other grain. See, wheat grain vastly different from wheat crop, isn't it? It looks different, it is different. It, both the seed and the grain are essentially the same thing. I, I imagine they've both got the same Latin name, you know, they both come from the same thing. And that's what it's going to be like. God gives uh, each of those dead seeds uh, the body that's right for them as they grow. Uh, verse 38, but God gives it a body as he has chosen and to each kind of seed its own body. So what we see here is that life comes out of death and when this life comes, there's a continuity with what's been before. So the seed and the plant, well, there's continuity there. They're the same genus. Uh, so in other words, for us, you will be you at the resurrection. Uh, you won't just be 
destroyed and reincarnated into something different, you will actually be you. Uh, but while there will certainly be continuity, Paul's next point is that there will also be transformation. So it will be you, but you'll be a transformed you. So verse 39, he points out, there's different flesh amongst the different creatures of the world. Uh, there's different flesh for humans, animals, birds and fish. God gives each what's exactly right for their uh, environment that they're in. Uh, he's given different flesh to different things according to what they need. And so it shouldn't be a surprise that God can give the right kind of body for the right environment. He'll give us the right body when we're raised. And then the third point is, there are different orders of body even in this creation. This is his point from verse 40 onwards. So um, there are kind of animal and human bodies, but then there are kind of heavenly bodies, you know, huge masses of uh, planets and so on. There's completely different orders of things all in God's creation. It's all within his, his ability, is what he's saying. Verse 40, there are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly body is of one kind and the glory of the earthly body is another. And that shows just the huge scope in terms of God's ability in, in creating. Uh, the sun and the moon, the stars, they're just so remarkably different uh, from kind of what we have here. And yet, with this extraordinary complexity and diversity in the universe, it's the same God who made it all. Now, that's what Paul's trying to make. That big, gigantic, atom-smashing furnace called the sun up there, God made that and he made us. <laughs> he made little, little electrons that go around little tiny atoms. Sciencey people will know more than me about this. Uh, but, you know, they're just kind of different realms of, of glory is what Paul calls it. So, human, I weigh about 80 kilograms. The sun weighs 2 trillion trillion kilograms. God made them both. And it's a simple point. God creates things in different orders. And so, the order that we're used to, there'll be a completely new order of of glory, if you like, in the resurrection. Uh, just as there's different uh, orders of glory now between us and you know the size of the sun, uh, so there'll be different orders in the new in the resurrection. Okay, and then he brings his fourth point that even in the res- even in the different order, so in this world of um, sun and stars and things like that, uh, there's differences. Verse 42. So even the sun differs from the moon. And what he's trying to say here is that uh, even though we'll, we'll still be, um, we'll be changed, there'll be differences between us. We're not all just going to morph into the same kind of body. And it kind of goes back to that first point, that you will still be you uh, at the resurrection. Um, so we're not just all going to be cl- clones of each other. You know, All the blokes will be Hugh Jackman and all the girls will be Cameron Diaz. I don't know. <laughs> no, you, we'll be different. It'll be, it'll be interesting and diverse. They're, they're the four points that Paul's making there. Uh, there used to be an ad on TV that I liked um, and there was a guy who got, grabbed a racing helmet and started, um, got on this bike, drove off the back of this um, ute and he was riding this little mini bike and then at kind of every couple of seconds... He was in a different uh, vehicle, you know, a little mini car to a big sedan to a Formula One car 
and then to a jet boat. He just kind of went on a river and then yeah, all this, and then he ended up going off a water floor in his, I don't know, hovercraft or something and uh, he came up in a hot air balloon and it just said Honda. And it was, it was an ad and, it, and it, was, it was really good because it was like Honda is responsible for all of these different things. They're, you know, the difference between the Formula One car and the little mini bike, you know, it's marked. It's, it's kind of, couldn't be more contrasted. Yeah, the same company was behind them both. And that's what uh, Paul's saying is here, is that God, he can do much bigger than uh, what we kind of often give him credit for. Uh, we might be feeble and weak, but it doesn't mean that we won't be resurrected gloriously. Same God who made these bodies made the sun. And, I mean, the best example between the, perhaps for us, between the continuity and the discontinuity uh, is to look at Jesus. Remember, remember the accounts of Jesus' resurrected body? Um, people touched him. Uh, they, he ate food. He had scars. So there's continuity. But at the same time, people had trouble recognising him, kind of go into rooms with locked doors. I don't know how, but there was something kind of amazing and different and glorious about this uh, resurrected Jesus. Physically resurrected, uh, but continuous with what had gone on before. And so that's kind of the point of that middle part of 1 Corinthians 15. And then uh, the next few verses show us about this transformation or perhaps a better way to put it is upgrade and this is where my trusty phone came in now once upon a time this Motorola can you believe have you ever seen something like this this used to be the pinnacle of technological advancement a flip top lid right but now kind of it's it's so old it's tragic, really. I walk along and people look at me like I'm kind of crazy carrying this old thing around. It's heavy and it doesn't have internet and so on. And it's like when we get these new, our new bodies, it'll be, it'll be an upgrade, right? My iPhone 5 or something. <laughs> but it's, it's an upgrade because I'm going to keep all my phone numbers, all of those things you can transfer onto the new model. The difference is that the iPhone 5 will be superseded. Our new bodies won't be. Okay, the illustration falls down. Uh, the, the new body won't wear out like a phone or computer or whatever. And that's what Paul is, is saying, verse 42 onwards. What's sown, imp- what's sown perishable is raised imperishable. What's sown in dishonour is raised in glory. Sown in weakness is raised in power. What's sown a natural body is raised a spiritual body. So if there's a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. What he's saying is our body will be different uh, from our new body. But our body will be far, far better in our new body. That's what he's saying. So one of my favourite verses um, in the Bible is in uh, Philippians chapter 3 and Paul's talking about the Philippians, there was this um, Roman colony and they're very proud of where they, that they were Roman citizens. And uh, Paul's teaching them and he says, you know, you might be proud of being a Roman citizen. But he says this in verse 20, Our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly await a saviour from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under control, under his control, he will transform our lowly bodies so that it will be like his glorious body. Now I don't know about you but 
So I'm in my early 30s. You know, I, someone was asking me about sport last night. I got to the point playing rugby where it would take me till Thursday to kind of stop kind of limping after the game on Saturday. Right? That was in my mid-20s. <laughs> I had to give up. And so uh, even at my age, you know, the sore back starts to creep in and, and so on and so forth. And this picture just makes me long <laughs> as I kind of feel the weakness and frailty of this uh, earthly body, what does Paul call it? This lowly body. And you feel it. Um, perhaps, you know, you guys are in your prime, but give yourself 10 years. <laughs> you feel it. But Paul's saying he will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body. You know, what great news that is. What great news for us. Jesus will come back and at that moment everything will be different. Our resurrected body will be marvellous. And it's, it's going to be like putting on a new outfit in the morning, a, a new change of clothes, just like that. Um, uh, we'll have this new, immortal, imperishable body that God has already prepared for us. Um, so that's going to happen when Jesus returns. Okay? He'll call people out of the grave, they'll be raised. But uh, what about when people die? That's a good question, isn't it? What happens to people when they die? Now, they will be raised when Jesus returns, but what about in between? Uh, well, this is, uh, this is an interesting question and it's brought some interesting answers actually from Christians through the centuries uh, and there's different opinions that people have about what happens to someone when they die. Where do they go? Um, perhaps when you die, you kind of enter this non-temporal state. So it's just that time doesn't matter anymore. And so you die and then, it, then Jesus has returned. So time stops. So the next thing you know is Jesus returned. You're raised. Okay, that's one, one option. Uh, and so you just die and then you get your resurrected body. Um, there's no time in eternity. Some people will say that. Another option, which is kind of a variety on this, is that it's just like being asleep. I don't know how you slept last night, <laughs> but some people say that when you die, it's just like being asleep until Jesus returns. And kind of there's some biblical warrant for this. So in our chapter that we just read, 1 Corinthians 15, Paul calls people who have died those who have fallen asleep. <laughs> uh, and he does the same thing in 1 Thessalonians about those who have fallen asleep. And so perhaps it's like uh, you go to sleep until resurrection day. Uh, but there is an alternative and I think this is um, really uh, where the Bible takes us and that's that your spirit or your soul goes somewhere while your body is left behind to rot or burn or be crocodile food, whatever it is, um, your soul goes somewhere else. Now, what I'm not talking about is um, what the Roman Catholic doc te Church teaches which is the doctrine of purgatory where you go somewhere and you can earn off earn your salvation in that place. Um, you work off the sins that you've accrued in this life. There's no biblical foundation for that actually at all. Um, in fact, if you remember Jesus' parable of the rich man and Lazarus, so they both die and they, the, the, um, Lazarus, who's the poor man, do you remember the parable? He's the poor man at the door, doesn't get any, he's a beggar, doesn't get anything from the rich man. Um, he goes to heaven and, and the rich man goes to hell straight away and they, um, there's no second chance 
the rich man says, please, you know, let Lazarus come and give me some water. And, and uh, Abram says, no, you had your chance. And that's the story of the Bible. There's no second chance. There's no purgatory. But I think that there is truth that your, your spirit or your soul goes somewhere uh, after you die. An intermediate state, we could call it. Um, so I'll just point to a few passages that indicate this for me. First, there's that parable that I was just telling you about. Um, and, and obviously it has limitations in that um, the guy in hell can talk to the guy in heaven and ask him to do things like that. But I, I think it does indicate that when you die, you go somewhere. And the second, um, perhaps more important point, is what Paul says in, in the book of Philippians, chapter 1. And he's talking about the dilemma he faces. He's stuck there in prison. Um, life's pretty horrible for him at the moment, yet he's still doing good. So um, he's able to tell the guards that he's with the gospel and some of them are believing and so on. But he's kind of he's at the end of his days and he's wondering about his life. And he says this in verse 22, If I'm to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labour for me. Yet what should I choose? I do not know. I'm torn between the two. Should I die or live? I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, but it's more necessary for you that I remain in the body. In other words, where does the believer go when he dies or she dies? To be with Christ is what Paul says. And that's exactly what Jesus taught us. Well, remember as he hung on the cross and there's a sinner right next to him and uh, the sinner kind of says, remember me. And he says to the sinner, today you'll be with me in paradise. Does that mean that today he'll be resurrected and have the full experience of heaven? I I don't think so, but his soul was with Jesus uh, in paradise that very day. So there's no waiting around. There's no kind of haunting... (coughs) our family and friends or whatever. It's not purgatory. It's, it's being with Christ. You're with Christ. If you're with Christ in life, you're with Christ in death, I think is what the, the Bible teaches until, until the resurrection. And my final passage on this point um, is in Revelation. So uh, you go to be with Christ, but the full experience of heaven is yet to come. And this is in uh, Revelation chapter 6, and uh, he, he opens, his, John, who writes Revelation, has these visions and he sees these seals being opened. And the, the fifth seal is opened, verse 9. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony that they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? And so there they are. They're the, <coughs> the souls of those, who, of those who've been faithful and, and they're, they're with Jesus, but they're crying out, how long? You know, bring on the resurrection. <laughs> uh, they're, they're in the presence of Christ and they're still conscious, but they're waiting for something else. Uh, they're waiting for the final resurrection. The final resurrection. And that's uh, kind of what... Paul had been talking about that final resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15. And so if we just go back to that passage and we come kind of full circle on where we've been uh, in this talk, what does this resurrection mean for how we approach death? Well, 
The last few verses, I think, of this chapter are just such a comfort for us. Uh, Verses 54 to 56. um, This is what uh, God's rescue plan for the world. What happens because of resurrection? Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? And we began by thinking about the, the blight on humanity that death is. It's painful, it hurts people. There's a, there's a real sting to death. But resurrection actually removes that sting, it takes it away. It reverses that pain. And the, the apparent victory that death has uh, is taken away because of resurrection. It's conquered. The, the, the conquered ones become the conquerors when they rise to life. Uh, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So Jesus, through his resurrection to this indestructible life, he's broken through the bondage of death. And he didn't just kind of come back to life like Lazarus did um, to die again. He broke through the other side, never to die again. And that's what we can look forward to as well. He smashed through victory. Uh, And, you know, because of his victory, we have victory too. See that? Who gives us the victory. (coughs) He did it and we're on his team. And when I was at college, they had, every year they had a chess competition. And uh, I know the rules of chess and that's about it. But I always entered in the hope, you know, that I might get lucky. Uh, Never made it past the first round. Until um, my final year, four, four years I had to go at this, um, and I, I, at that stage you know, I was kind of involved in organising stuff and uh, the whole competition had been drawn out, the draw had been done, my name was there in the first round and it had all been organised beautifully and then this first year um, college student came and asked me if he could join the chess competition and it was all kind of organised and I said, look, you just, wherever it says my name, you just... You know, play that game. So anyway, so he he, um, he played the games, and I noticed that actually he got through the first round, and kind of through the second round, and through. There's my name, like he had his name kind of <laughs> underneath in brackets, but he was progressing through. I went to talk to him. You're doing very well, he said. I'll let you in on a secret. I was the state chess champion seven years running. <laughs> anyway, won the whole competition. So you know, now the trophy, we, we collected the trophy together <laughs> because of what he did. And it's a bit like that with resurrection. And because of what Jesus has done, we have the victory. We have the victory with him. Uh, The the apparent uh, futility, uh, the apparent finality of death, um, its relentless conquest as we see see it happening in our world, devouring every human and seems unstoppable. And this tyranny of death is overcome because of resurrection. And what seems like an obscure little funny thing to have happened to one person 2,000 years ago. When Jesus returns, it'll be the norm. You know, we were talking earlier about how hard it is for us to grapple with resurrection. Well, this, when, it, when all people are raised, I mean, what were we thinking about? And we know that, can be, and we know that that's for sure because Jesus has come back. And so, as we face death, um, its sting is taken away from us. Um, it's still an enemy and it's still sad but we, we don't have to be distraught about it. Um, that great enemy of death is destroyed because Jesus rose from the dead.
And so we can even approach death somewhat triumphantly, if you like, um, happily walk to our death, like, like Paul was. Um, you know, I, I desire to be with Christ, which is better by far, is what he said. Um, I'm not sure if you've heard the name of, of Henry Venn. Uh, like I'm a church history guy, so all my stories come from a few hundred years ago. But there were, a couple of hundred years ago in this country, there was this evangelical awakening. Um, George Whitfield and John Wesley. Have you ever heard those names? Yeah, okay, good. And uh, Henry Venn was kind of in this crowd. He was one of these people who just kind of rediscovered the gospel and, and shared it with people. And he was friends with kind of William Wilberforce. It was kind of a younger generation who ended slavery and so on. Anyway, well, William Wilberforce and those, those guys all saw this old guy, Henry Venn, in the late 1700s because um, his son was their minister in Clapham in London. And uh, they, Henry was living as, as an old man in this house and they all saw how he was dying and it made a real impact on them because as he kind of approached his last days, um, the joy rose within him as he, as he approached death. Uh, and so um, John Thornton, one of these guys, wrote, wrote in his diary, Old Mr. Venn is almost at the last stage, but he's like a shock of corn fully ripe and he's promised to finish his course triumphantly. That's the way he looked to death. Triumphantly, because of Jesus' resurrection. And the story goes that when the doctor came to see old Henry Venn there in his bed and said, look, came out and said, um, look, you know, he's got just a few more hours to live or something like this. But when Henry Venn heard the news, he got so excited that he lived for a whole other fortnight <laughs> at the prospect <laughs> of his death. <laughs> but that's the way it can be for us too. Because of Jesus' resurrection, because of certainty of our own resurrection, well, death has lost its, its, its sting. The, the pain is, is taken away and we can look forward to this thing which is just so much better. Well, let's pray that we'll do that in our lives. Heavenly Father, we do thank you so much uh, for Jesus' resurrection, for the fact that because he has defeated death, we can be certain that we will too, uh, that we have the victory through him through his work for us. And Father, we pray that that perspective will shape the way that we live our lives, the way that we think about our own death. And Father, we pray that you might fill us with a confidence and assurance in the hope of your resurrection that you've promised for us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.